Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... Four out of five students start kindergarten unprepared for the kindergarten curriculum, which means that there's actually a language gap for students. Um, So that language gap just means that maybe they don't understand some of the words that we're using in the classroom around mathematics. And it's something that we can fill using experiential learning. So basically puzzles that as the student solves, we're giving them the words, we're labeling the ideas that they're exhibiting while they're solving the puzzle. It's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. How are your children doing with mathematics? Do you want to help them solve their math problem once and for all? What about your students at school? How many of them are frustrated because they cannot understand the language you are using in your math class? If you are a parent, a teacher, or anyone intimidated by math, this episode is for you. You will learn how to create lifelong learners confident in their math abilities, free from math-related anxiety, and capable of thriving in a STEM-centric future. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Aditya Nagrath, co-founder and chancellor of Elephant Learning. Aditya graduated with a dual major in mathematics and computer science from the University of Denver, Colorado. While working full-time as a software developer, he completed his PhD in mathematics and computer science and founded Elephant Head Software. Later on, in 2016, he co-founded Elephant Learning to bring transformational change to America's education system because we have a big math problem. Four out of five children enter kindergarten unprepared for the math curriculum at school, and only one-third of high school students are proficient in math. In college, nearly 70% of all STEM majors end up switching to a major with less math. How does elephant learning help? It is an automated math academy that guarantees children learn one year of math in three months. All it takes is 30 minutes a week of math on the Elephant Learning app. The result? Children become confident students with a solid foundation to support their lifelong math comprehension. But this is not only about math. According to studies, Children who perform better in math go on to perform better in reading, writing, speaking, and problem solving. The elephant learning process uses algorithms to detect what a child does and does not understand. Then, children receive activities proven to teach math concepts faster, more efficiently, and with better results. You, the parent, receive real-time reports on your child's progress, plus handy advice to take the concepts your child is learning outside of the app and apply them to real life. Tune in to learn from a visionary leader on a mission to change how the world teaches mathematics. Let's dive right in. Hello, Aditya. Welcome to Impact Learning. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite memory related to learning? Well, you know, I I like to tell people sometimes on how I got started uh, with uh, programming, software programming. I had kind of taken all the computer courses that uh, the middle school had to offer. I was in Pueblo, Colorado. They didn't have like computer programming as a course back then in the high school, nor in the middle school, but the computer teacher had made like a course of basic on the Apple IIgs way back then. And basically he put me in a room 
you know, with three or four other kids and gave us a book and said, here, like, you guys should learn how to program basic. And so that's what we ended up doing. How did, I guess, this first experience guide you uh, for the rest of the journey? Because you studied computer science and mathematics. Was that part of the overall, I guess, fun you had with programming? So, yeah, I got a bachelor's in computer science and a bachelor's in mathematics. And uh, really, I was kind of focused on computers and computer science. But the more computer science you do, the more mathematics you encounter. So it was kind of hand in hand. What did you do after college? When I graduated undergrad, I, I started working as a software engineer at different companies, started at Dish Network, and then I worked for a couple of different contracting shops that were out there. Uh, but I was working on my uh, PhD at the same time. So when I graduated my PhD, I was still working for a contract software engineering firm. But then basically I ended up freelancing. And then shortly thereafter, I started bringing people on and, and creating my own firm. Mm -hmm. What's the name of the firm that you created? Elephant Head Software. Okay. During the time you were running the company, you also obtained your PhD. And then how did the elephant learning idea and work emerge? Yeah, so basically I was running Elephant Head Software for several years and we had been working with some people from the university and, you know, they, they were working on this project, but ultimately things came to head in that they were looking for a new grant. And so like that grant required us to start a company around a uh, research that came from the National Science Foundation. And basically when I looked at it, Like I said, well, this is how we're going to do it. And we never really received the funding, but we, we did create the new company. Okay, very good. So let's take a pause here for those who are not familiar with elephant learning. What, uh, what problem are you solving? Basically, what we learned was that four out of five students start kindergarten unprepared for the kindergarten curriculum, which means that there's actually a language gap for students. So that language gap... Uh, just means that maybe they don't understand some of the words that we're using in the classroom around mathematics. And it's something that we can fill using experiential learning. So basically puzzles that as the student solves, we're giving them the words, we're labeling the ideas that they're exhibiting while they're solving the puzzle. And basically we were able to continue that through algebra. And now in algebra, we're going to do videos and other stuff. But we started with, you know, can we continue to make puzzles And so like, that's kind of what we, the problem we're solving and how we solve it. And uh, who are the students? You talked about uh, like students, kids not being prepared when they start. Are, yeah. they, are they still the, I guess, the children that you aim to help? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, 2019 statistics, 75% of high school students are not proficient at high school ma mathematics, according to the NAEP. And what that means then is that, typically speaking, it's a break around fractions, decimals, and percentages. So we see a lot of students come in, maybe older, 13 years old, maybe testing at a third grade level. And so we're filling that gap of language so that they could walk in at the 13-year-old level and uh, be able to participate in class and understand the teacher. But the students range from ages two and up. We've had success with some two-year-olds. We've seen some three-year-olds that are not ready yet. So it depends on the early side about language skills and can they use the tablet, et cetera. But yeah, we help all children. We've had children with learning impairments. We've had children basically from all different backgrounds come in and, and pick up the language and, and learn the math. Tell me a little bit more about this language. What do you mean by that? Sure. So like when you're talking about the numbers, that's basic vocabulary, right? And then once you have the numbers, there starts to become operations that we do on the numbers, like addition and subtraction. And it's related to words like more or less. So anyone that's got children of this young age, they might turn on leapfrog and they might see like leapfrogs trying to elaborate this language for children through cartoon, right? The challenge is this, is that really what you're labeling is an idea. So like the way I like to describe it is more like a color, right? So like a color is an idea, but a color is also something physical. 
And like the way that you get the child to learn what the color is, is you show them a lot of different things with the same colors. Like here's a red truck, here's a red ball, here's a, right? And they have those cartoons too. And ultimately what we're trying to do then is we're trying to get the student to exhibit an idea such as addition or subtraction or multiplication and, or division, and then also label it at the same time, right? So they have to exhibit the idea. So they actually have to solve the problem in their head and understand that this is the problem I'm solving. And then they have to associate the idea of addition with it. And, you know, just like with the colors, it takes multiple times and you can vary the numbers, but like, as soon as they start to now grasp that, oh, okay, so this is what you mean, right? Like, even with the numbers, this is a thing. It's like the quantity, right? And actually this continues through fractions, decimals, and percentages, because these are all base definitions. And when you get to algebra, now we start to have conversations in that language. Mm -hmm. So I understand there is a part of experiential learning. And uh, based on the research I did on your work in elephant learning, I also saw an adaptive learning component. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea is, is as the student is answering correctly or incorrectly, we're able to determine what ideas we're feeding that idea or what ideas are being fed by that idea. And so we're always trying to give the students puzzles that are exactly at that level, at their level. We're able to actually jump ahead or jump backwards. So like say a student played as another student and that, you know, the second, the first student was older, right? So like maybe you got a five-year-old and a three-year-old and the five-year-old plays as a three-year-old and brings them up to the, like a four-year-old level, right? Well, then when they start answering incorrectly, it also speeds up. Or when they answer correctly, it speeds up to try to catch up to them. So, like, if they get it, we are actually able to catch up to them very, very quickly. Like, you know, it's not, like, instantaneous. I mean, no one can be instantaneous, right? But, like, but it is very comfortable. And we've, we've spent some time making sure that it feels right. Like, if I'm a kid that gets it or if I'm a kid that maybe is answering one wrong here and there, is the speed Right. So it's something that we're adapting to the student and we're always feeding them puzzles right at their level so that it's not confusing. Mm -hmm. Another a very interesting aspect, I think, in the design of uh, the application is the, the placement, the assessment, the way you do it. Can you speak to that? What we do for the placement exam is we, we choose a starting point within the system. So we've got like five or six of these starting points set up. And it's basically, can you test out of these subjects? So we keep going through subjects, testing out of the subjects until the student is showing that they're not proficient. So one thing that's important is that this placement exam start behind the student. So we're careful about that when it comes to like placing the student automatically based on age. But this, the parent themselves, knowing their student can choose like, no, I wanna set the student back because I know they're at the third grade level. So let's give them the third grade exam. Or, you know what, I got a young kid that's advanced, so I want to actually hit, set them ahead. So, like, we allow the parent to set it, but basically we try to guess based on age on the way in. And actually, we do have a newer system that we're sending parents through where we can ask them a couple of questions and say, we recommend this. But the idea is, is that we're able to quickly then determine using this method which subjects your students should start with. So what is their initial level of proficiency? Mm-hmm. How important or how critical is the level they start? And now I'm asking because I'm thinking if they, they struggle with the first activity, maybe that's not helping them, you know, get them encouraged to continue. That's exactly the problem. So if the placement exam starts beyond the student's level, they'll miss all the questions, then they'll drop in and then the system has to adapt back. That's not what you want. You want the placement exam to catch up to them so they're building confidence. But the importance of starting at their level is second to nothing else, basically, because the, the example I like to give is it's really challenging to learn multiplication if you don't have a strong grasp of addition, right? Because multiplication is repeated yeah. of addition. Really, these activities, that, the ones that are feeding the next activity, you got to get that initial starting point right, or at least you got to be close, maybe to the downside, right? So that they're getting it right and you're, and you're walking into their level. So that piece is probably one of the most important things of our system. And the report that we give the parent or the teacher as a result of that is extremely detailed because you have these assessments that maybe the school gives or like uh, maybe you go into uh, a learning center and they have a, an initial placement assessment and you look at the results. But our thing tells you 
here's exactly where they're placed. Here's exactly why they're placed there. And it now allows the teacher or parent to have a conversation to see, well, did they get it? Did they not get it? Was it an accident? And you can always gear our system to put them back into that placement mode. So if they answered a question incorrectly on accident because they hit the wrong button, well, then guess what? You put that subject right back into test out mode and they continue right where they left off. Very good. So I guess part of the adaptive aspect is also the feedback and the discussion you have with either the parent or the teacher. It's important for the parent also to realize what the child is doing. So part of the idea when I started was that my child was actually on his, my first child was on his way. And I realized that, you know, like his education has to be my responsibility. And so, you know, when we started putting this together, in my mind, what I was aiming for was how can I, as a parent, ensure that my child understands this, this subject as it, as the research I was getting from the professors was, this is crucial. Like, uh, like all subjects are dependent on preschool mathematics, including reading. And I know why that is now. It's because when you transition to two digit numbers in kindergarten, that's a precursor to you understanding also that when the letters are put together, that forms a different meaning. It's the same idea as far as writing is concerned. So I wanted to make sure that uh, I could do this. And Part of that was, well, if I could feed back to myself the teacher training that we're putting into this system about how we're going to teach this subject and how do you get it across, then I can make absolutely sure uh, as the parent that the system is doing it because I know what I'm supposed to be asking the student to see outside the system if it's working. Very good. What kind of feedback do you give to the, the children? So the children uh, get a random animation every time they answer a question correctly. When they pass a milestone, they get a milestone passed animation. And then uh, when they pass a subject, we give them a subject passed animation. And then, you know, the subject disappears and something new pops on the screen. After that, we're not trying to motivate them too much because it's kind of like a puzzle game. It's kind of like Angry Birds, right? So like the idea is, is that Well, you beat the puzzle, you get the reward, but the reward really is, is that you beat the puzzle. What do uh, children enjoy the most? What do they say about the, the activity? That's a good question. So, I mean, some children love the game. Some children come into the game and then they say, this is math and you can't fool me. So that's why we coach the parent on the way in. Don't set the expectations correctly, right? Don't You know, don't just tell them it's a video game. They're going to think it's Fortnite or something like that. Set the expectation properly. It's a puzzle game. It maybe feels like Angry Bird. You can choose the character around it. And so, like, theoretically speaking, if everything is happening properly, then a lot of the students, they find it fun. And, I mean, I haven't really got the feedback. They like Sometimes they like the animation. Sometimes they just, you know, they find the puzzles interesting. It's like playing Sudoku or something like that. You know what I mean? But really, the thing that's heartwarming is when we hear that they're walking into the classroom and they, they are now feeling confident and they're able to participate in class and math time is now fun for them. That's what really makes us feel good over here at Elephant Learning. Beautiful. Before we go into a discussion about skills yeah. beyond math, which I think is an amazing aspect of the work you are doing, I want to talk about the length of time because it is learning. It's not a video game. It may be fun and engaging, but it's still learning. So you use the phrase, it's like a med. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this idea of the med, I, I got from Four Hour Body, I believe, and they talked about tanning. It was like sun sunbathing. The optimal tanning time is 15 minutes. If you can tan more if you want, or you can tan less, but if you tan 15 minutes, you'll get optimal results. If you tan way, way more, you're not going to get better results, but you could burn and then you lose days. And so what it was, was like the med is like you, like, like a medicine, you take one tablet, right? But the med for tanning was 15 minutes a day. And so really the way I thought about it was this was, um, when I was a kid, you know, very similar things existed. It might not have had the adaptive technology. It might not have been backed by research. But the activities were very similar, right? Math hasn't changed since 1980, so why would it be different? So, but when we would play that in the school, 
we knew it was mathematics. It's not like I didn't have a Nintendo or a Sega at home. I, I like, I knew this was mathematics. And so like, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on the children. That's what it is. We are prescribing it as a med to enhance your mathematics. And the thought is almost like it's like going to the gym, right? If you put in 10 minutes a day, three days a week, well, we've measured over 10 weeks, you're going to get the results. You're going to get more than the results on average. If the student or the parent starts to treat it that way, like 10 minutes a day, five days a week, or 10 minutes a day, three days a week, not only do you build that regimen with this thing, but then you build that in as a successful method of achieving anything. You can learn to play the piano in 10, 20 minutes a day. You can learn to, I don't know, weave a pillow, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could go to the gym and you could take care of yourself for 10 to 20 minutes a day. Yeah, very good. I think the, it's available, Elephant Learning is available on app. So they can use it on a computer, but also they can use it on their smartphone, right? Absolutely. So what we did was when we were getting started, and again, like, you know, we plan to sell it to parents, but, you know, like we looked at what the schools have just in case, because you never know. And the thing was, is we had to be ubiquitous. We had to be on everything. We had to be on like Chromebooks because Chromebooks could go in there. We could, had to be on iPads. So we programmed it for web. And we programmed it for like as, you know, like as basic JavaScript as we could get going back as far as we could go on the browsers. And then we adapted that web app for the different platforms, iOS, Android, Amazon, Kindle Fire. Is it one versus the other more effective or you see that they prefer to use it more, let's say, on the smartphone or on the web browser? To be honest, the tablet's the best way, and most of the children are using it on tablet. It's got a nice big screen. They can mm-hmm. touch the objects better. So they, they're getting more of that Montessori experience on the tablet. The computer works well, though the touchscreen is really nice for the younger children. What do we know about the impact of, of math in choosing major and advancing further your higher education journey? So what we know is that Computers and digitization is entering virtually every single industry. And as it enters those industries, well, everything becomes more data-driven. So majors that once used to be the go-to for children that maybe didn't want to do mathematics or had some sort of anxiety around mathematics, like, for example, business or marketing or et cetera, right, are now so statistically driven that the professors are having a hard time getting the students to understand in the classroom. So the majority of students are now switching to humanities majors where there is no mathematics, which means then that most of the other majors out there have mathematics, specifically STEM, because all of science is basically built on top of statistical significance and et cetera, data science, which is all very heavily mathematically based. And so, even if you wanted to be a physicist, it's all calculus, it's all differential equations, biology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So math, it, it's a weird thing because when you ask the math teacher, when am I ever going to use this? They're always blanked. They never know where, right? And the thing is, is that even as someone who uses mathematics on a daily basis, I don't know where I'm using it. Computer science is all algebra. Like, I mean, the second you start typing inside of the... Uh, the code window, you're typing algebra. Well, you don't think of it that way, do you? So it is literally probably the one most important subject that a student can learn today. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more now about further you know, skills. So problem solving, analytical thinking, that they are helping us, of course, at any stage of our education and uh, work, but they're like skills for life. How does math help, like as a problem-solving tool? Okay, so in multiple different ways, right? So first, what we do in our system to determine proficiency in a particular subject is the student has to exhibit that they're able to apply the idea in order to solve a problem. So for example, some of the most challenging addition-subtraction questions we have are, here are two groups of objects. Which group has more? then how many more does it have? And the student needs to now understand that they have to apply addition or subtraction in order to get the difference to solve the problem. 
So mathematics as a tool is a problem-solving tool. Now, how does it help with other problem-solving ideas? The more practice that you get with solving problems, either by applying the tools or by applying the processes to get the answer or by fiddling with some algebra equation to figure out what X is, I mean, it's hard to say where it helps you, but I know that it helps you because every time I take a IQ test for fun or something, it's all mathematics. It's in some different form or fashion at the end of the day. So like it's pattern recognition, it's problem solving. It's that's what it is. Does elephant learning help or can help children that have various learning and cognitive capabilities? Yeah, so because we're focusing on teaching mathematics as a language, all children tend to benefit. Now, of course, there's exceptions to that. Like, I think uh, we don't help blind students because if they can't see the iPad, it's not really going to work. We could build something that was for uh, visually impaired, but that's not our focus right now. I don't know immediately how I would do it. But We've had students come in with ADHD or autism or et cetera. And actually, like, we don't collect that information on the way in. So, like, I don't have hard statistics for you like I do for, hey, on average, they learn a year and a half, right? But for the most part, what I do know is that a lot of parents have raised their hand and spoken about the successes they've had. And and they're pretty, you know, jazzed about it because they're not getting success in many other places, And so they've left case studies. We've commemorated them as case studies on our website. They've, they were interviewed by uh, uh, a third-party firm that uh, went and wrote the case study, and then we published it on our website. And we got 58 of those now, and there's students with ADHD, uh, dyslexia, uh, autism, dyscalculia, basically anything you can imagine, and also students that are ahead. We have four, five, six, seven-year-olds that consistently make it to fractions, decimals, and percentages. And if you think about it, I mean, the statistic I have, it's a little bit older. It says 75% of Americans cannot calculate a 20% tip. So to have a four or five or six-year-old and to consistently get four, five, and six-year-olds to there means we're really going to flip this on its head. Yes, of course. I can see how basically using elephant learning can help a three-year-old or four-year-old or as soon as they can, you know, engage, prepare them because they learn from the beginning. Now, when I think of uh, an older, uh, you know, let's say student who has been struggling and maybe failing some of these tests, I can feel the agony and the anxiety and the fear associated with math. What do you do about that? How do you handle this fear and anxiety? So we have coaching for the parents and we in, intend to keep expanding the coaching for the parents. And ultimately what ends up helping them is allowing them to go back to their level of understanding and filling in that language. That's why we get students that say like they used to hate math and now they feel confident and they enjoy math class. We did a thing with Touch Tulsa in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and They had 30 students come through the system and they're from varied backgrounds. I believe it was a refugee uh, type organization. And so like, it could even be that some of these students maybe struggled with English. And what we saw was that the nine-year-olds basically consistently tested out at around a six, seven-year-old level, depending on the student, but they were able to catch up to their age within three or four months very, very quickly. So like they gained two to three years of mathematics from a language perspective. And the reason why we're able to do that is because that student still has had those years of mathematical experiences in the classroom. And as they're solving our puzzles and gaining the intuition into what those things actually meant, those memories are connected. And so what we'll typically even see is that they might struggle with something for a second. So you might see a couple of days go by as level, they'll catch it and their age will shoot up to the next place where they're struggling and then it'll shoot up again. And so within three or four months, many of these students are catching up. And honestly, that's the major thing to overcoming the anxiety. When you find out that this stuff is not really that complicated and it's just fundamental stuff, then they're right back on board. We talked a lot about the, the parents who come to you with a problem, of course, and they want to help their children. 
how do you see now elephant learning as a tool that can be used by teachers at school? So what we've done is we've created a dashboard for the teacher and we are allowing the parents to share their data with the teacher so that basically a lot of parents came to us and said, it'd be great if I could get this to my, my student's teacher, if I could get this to a tutor, the tutor that we're using or et cetera. And so uh, we built this thing that allows them to share. And what we provide for the teacher is a dashboard where they could see all of their students. So the, the teacher can also add the students. They could pay or they can invite a parent to please put the student in and share it with them, uh, share the student with them. And on this screen, you're able to determine very quickly who's ahead, who's behind, who's right on track for your lecture, right? So like by the elephant age, you can see like, well, the average age of the class is here. So you'd hope everyone's above the average age of the class at the very least, but we are also able to determine and show them how much usage is happening. So like if they're on the left side of the graph, so we, we, we also uh, up down plot average usage. And so if they're on the left side of the graph, it's like, well, you're using this less than the average student. You could use it more. So we could get them into the fourth quadrant and up to the second quadrant. If they're in the first quadrant, they're fine. If they're in the second quadrant, they're fine. Then ultimately it's the fourth quadrant you wanna focus on because those are the students that maybe are using it more but they're still below average. If they're making progress, that's great. But if you see them, you know, getting stuck at that point, as a teacher, you know, well, let me click on them. Let me look at their report. Let me give them some one-on-one -on -one time. So this actually allows the teacher to manage the classroom by exception, which is actually what needs to happen. Because if you can get the entire group to understand the lecture, well, your lecture is going to be more effective. Mm -hmm. So it is a complementary tool for the teacher. Absolutely but also enables them because as you said, now they, they can see details, they can see why they answered, why you know the students answered certain way and what, what are they missing? What is that uh, maybe the teacher needs to, to teach or explain in a better way, in a more effective way? So there is a lot of this kind of analytics that you get and that, and that they, I guess the teacher gets automatically through the dashboard that you built for them. Through the dashboard and right underneath that, is the teacher training for the subjects that all the students are in. We tell them, here's the teacher training for this subject and you got this many students in it. So like, it's, it's like a resource, right? Because like typically teacher training is during the summer, I'm gonna take this course with this university and maybe I'll get a credit or maybe I'll fulfill some continuing education. But now what we're saying is like, look, I mean, this is a reference. So like you need the teacher training at the student's level when they're having the problem, not over the summer and then try to remember it. So we're giving them that at the level, at the time. This is about as effective as you can make it. If you go back to when you started and you, let's say you reach out to the first teachers, what was their response? Because I'm thinking that all these teachers have been trained and educated, you know, in the traditional way of memorizing, instructing. So were they susceptible? Were they open to that? Or did you experience resistance? So very early on, so this is like 2016, maybe early 2017, like we were writing code in 16 and we were started really marketing in 17. We had some teachers come out so that me and the professor could speak to them about the system and see what is the interest. And what we realized was several things. One, that a lot of the training out there right now is already talking about the conceptual mathematics. But really the problem is, is that in order to teach conceptual mathematics, you really do need the one-on-one -on -one time because it's really challenging to understand whether the student understands or not. And in fact, the teacher already knows this because the common core standards kind of require that. So like depending on the district and like, you know, do we love common core or do we hate common core? And it seems to be just that. It may vary on like on that thing, but the truth is, is that we do the hard part for the teacher. We're able to evaluate the common core without the one-on-one -on -one time because we're testing it conceptually. And so therefore the teachers, when they looked at it, were already like, oh, wow, this is amazing. This solves my problem. So whenever a teacher sees it, they're like, well, that's exactly the issue that I'm having. I can't do that on a classroom basis. I have to do that one-on-one -on -one, and now it's impossible because it's 30 to one. Beautiful. So you really enable them. You give them um, a tool so they can do more, you know, as one teacher, but they can do more for their class and for each of the students individually. 
Absolutely. And their account is 100% free. They can sign up. I mean, if they put students in, they may have to pay or they could invite the parent to come into the system and pay. And we actually did this thing where we found out that a lot of teachers were actually setting aside a portion of their paycheck to purchase things for their classroom. And so we've kind of felt bad about this. So we said, you know what we can do is we could actually donate to that classroom fund for them. So like as the parents sign up, we basically put money into that classroom fund for them. In what form do you offer, let's say, free membership for some or is it partial discount? In what form do you like support their fund? Absolutely. So so say they invite a parent and the parent will automatically get a scholarship because they're being invited by a teacher. So like when the teacher invites them, we assume that, okay, maybe the student needs it or they're recommending it because maybe they're ahead and they, they need, you know, more challenging stuff. So to keep them interested. So we will give the parent automatically some sort of scholarship, which will potentially discount their membership to as low as maybe 10 or $11 per month. If they need extra support, we have an organization called Math Matters, and they provide full tuition scholarships. So during COVID right now, lots of people are getting a full tuition scholarship. They've lost a job or et cetera. And they go talk to Math Matters and Math Matters is like, okay, we'll give you this, right? For free. But say the parent is paying, right? After that, it basically kind of works almost like an affiliate program, right? So we have a certain percentage of the first month that we then put into the classroom fund. And we're working on moving this like internally because we were using like an affiliate tracking software to implement this, but to make it real, like as a donation, we're going to now do this internally so that it feels exactly like what we're saying. And everything you just talked about is wonderful. Thank you for that. Because sure. as I'm also thinking of, uh, let's say, learning and abilities to learn, another very important aspect is access to learning, right? So you need to have access to learning tools like elephant learning to further advance your math skills and overcome, you know, the, maybe the struggles you are facing. What have you seen during COVID? It's almost a year now. Have you seen better adoption? How do you see elephant learning helping with the issues, you know, students and parents and teachers are facing? I would really love to hear your insights during, you know, the pandemic. Sure. We accelerated the the creation of this dashboard during COVID. And the reason why is because mathematics was challenging in front of a classroom with 30 students from the reasons I just told you about. At the very least, when the teacher is speaking in front of the classroom with 30 students, they can look at the children's faces and determine, okay, this one seems to be getting it. This one's checked out. This one doesn't understand, right? So they have some sort of a sense already. So probably we, we are already resonating with a lot of teachers with what we've said, but what I'm talking about right now is impossible on a Zoom call. So they have zero idea who's getting it, who's not getting it, what are we doing? And I think the strategy has been to just, let's give them a lot of homework, let's give them a lot of activity, let's, and that's actually kind of taken some things that were positive for us and made it actually harder for us to get into the, uh, into the home. And so, yeah, I mean, COVID's got its positives for our business and negatives for its business, but overall it's negative for the world because uh, what's being developed is this COVID gap, this almost year now where students are not receiving the learning that they require, especially as far as mathematics and science is concerned. Mm -hmm. And what I like particularly about Elephant Learning, and this is why I also asked about, you know, the web browser and the app, because the, the time that's required, you know, if the student has access to a Chromebook or a tablet or a smartphone, finding, you know, 10 minutes three times a week is easier than sitting on a video call for two hours when you don't have the, you know, the internet capacity and everything. So I think it makes like access, access to learning easier for those, you know, who are underserved and maybe they don't have, you know, the tools and the resources that other students have. And that's very important. And we've seen that COVID has brought, I mean, they're not new problems, but has brought these problems to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And look, our mission is only to empower children with mathematics. So I make all my decisions that way, right? Like if we yeah. can 
do something. And if it empowers more children with mathematics, then we do it. Mm -hmm. So you explained very well how you help now uh, parents at at home on the kitchen table and also teachers, you know, to manage their um, their learning and, and help their students. What is your ultimate vision? Like, could elephant learning transform learning and teaching math at school? And in which way? I think as, as a tool in the classroom, this is something that could actually bring all of the students up to the level that the teacher is speaking to and make math engaging for the entire classroom. So as a tool for the classroom, it's wonderful. Where we intend to go from here is like our original vision was to change the way the world teaches mathematics. We've empowered almost, I don't even know what the number is, but it's over 100,000 students at this point. We've taught over 1.4, almost 1.5 million months of mathematics. It works out to over 120,000 years. So we're, we're fulfilling the mission best we can. Where I want to go is we are going to rework our algebra curriculum because one of the main things was, was we didn't have video. And as you can see now, I'm, I'm in a very professional video studio just in case, right? Mm-hmm. And first we said, okay, well, what we owe the parents already is to go back and make videos for all of the subjects instead of just giving them teacher training via text. So now we have the teacher training videos or the parent training videos, the coaching videos. And then ultimately it's, okay, let's go back and redo our algebra curriculum and add video in. And honestly, it's can we teach coding at the exact same time? Wonderful. You've uh, written something that really intrigued me and I will will read it now. You said, what would our society look like if we could create politicians and entrepreneurs who could understand math and develop critical mental models and problem-solving skills? I'd love to hear your insights on that. It's kind of like the possibilities from achieving the mission, right? If we could get a society, like, so Singapore is the most math literate society at 69%. Right now, the United States is at 25%, and it's likely heading down for just about everyone, right? If we were to create a society that was math literate, the question is, is like, what would it look like if the business people and the, and the politicians could understand the scientists and the engineers and the mathematicians? Like, would we be able to create policy that was better serving to our people? And I th- think obviously the answer is yes, right? Would we be able to create businesses that are, are better serving also to our people? I know that people kind of look down upon mathematics. They look down upon us computer people. They tell me things like, hey, you're doing this, but like, how is this going to affect people emotionally? And I do care about that. I do have empathy for people. It's not like computer scientists and mathematicians don't have empathy for people. And the answer actually is the further I go into this, the more that I automate, the more people are actually comfortable with the things that human beings make them uncomfortable with. And this is something that they are overlooking. So I I actually think that our society accelerates into this technological advancement that we're making, right? We need more technically literate people to feed into this engine of knowledge that we are creating at such a accelerated pace so that we can reach the next curve of evolution, whatever that looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. And as I, as I hear you talk about it, I think of, you know, a learning mindset, a growth mindset, a student who is not afraid or intimidated by math, more or less feels very confident to solve different problems, doesn't get upset or angry if he or she doesn't, because an obstacle is just a problem that they haven't solved yet. So I think... To me, I see that, I know you don't teach social skills, but to me, it's a posture. It's a posture that I'm confident. I understand how things work. I can say right from wrong because, you know, my thinking is rational. And if something does not work my way, I don't get upset. I don't get afraid. I'm just trying to learn how to solve the problem. To me, that is a big part of what a citizen, because, you know, we are students, we are parents, uh, sons, daughters. That's like a big part of what a, a citizen in any country needs to be, to be able to solve problems. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. So 
one of the first things is that like when it comes to emotions, the first thing is we shouldn't be stigmatizing negative emotions, frustration, anger, upset. The thing is, is human beings are emotional creatures and accepting ourselves is the first step of accepting those emotions and then being able to overcome them. Now, I mean, I grew up with fear. I grew up with the same emotions as everybody else. And so the thing is, is that like what the mathematics adds is a, a degree of rationality, like you said, so that like the fear-based thinking isn't the only thing that I'm making my choices and decisions around because everyone's going to make fear-based choices, right? I mean, as far as I can tell, everyone experiences fear. I mean, it's part of the wiring of our brain. But what you're saying about the growth mindset and making mistakes and then being able to accept that I made a mistake and learn from that, regardless of whether I got frustrated or not due to the mistake, right? Because like I've played a video game before and then I didn't make it and I died. I got, I was like, God, I want to do this, right? So like that's happened. I mean, and it happens, right? So it's not necessarily about the emotions around it, but rather what do you do after the emotion passes? Do you pick it back up again and do you try again? And do you use this as a learning opportunity or do you use this as an opportunity to allow fear or to prove fear right. And if you do the second, then to be honest, I don't have any research to back this up, but logically speaking, the level of success that you're gonna experience in your life, and I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about literally, here's my goal, am I gonna achieve it or not, is significantly less, if not zero. Beautiful, this is wonderful insight, thank you so much. Before we go into my final question, I want to pause and see if there are other aspects of the design of elephant learning or anything else you would like to talk about that we haven't covered yet. Really, we spent a lot of time and and there's a lot of people here that are working on it and, and really spending time thinking about it on, again, just imagining all the ways that like, does this empower children with mathematics or would this cause some sort of problem? So for example, you mentioned the reward system earlier. So like just revisiting that particular decision, like how do we reward the students? We looked at psychological research that said that if a child does activity A in order to do activity B, then activity A turns into work. So we didn't want mathematics to turn into work. So we couldn't make it like, oh, you do the math to play another game. Lots of people out there do that, right? So you're potentially could put your child into something where it's like, oh, well, now math turned into work, right? Every decision we made was kind of painstakingly thought over to a ridiculous degree. I mean, maybe a week or two to make the decision on what does the reward system look like? Because, well, we have this piece of research here, we have this piece of research here, and we see students reacting to this thing. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. And really, like, I mean, things that maybe look just insignificant in our system, potentially had a lot of thought behind it. Mm -hmm. You know that many Americans, but also many parents around the world, believe that for some reason they are not good at math. That's the story. That's the narrative in their head. And based on that, they also assume that if their daughter or son does not do good at math, it's like, uh, you know, they have inherited their genes. So if a mother or a father who has this narrative in their head, like, I'm not good at math, my children are not going to be good at math. What do you tell them? So they can, <laughs> what do you tell them to them that, to help them take a step? Because I don't agree with this narrative, but also I know that it's very difficult to challenge it. So how do you approach it? Well, okay, so this is actually a very challenging thing to approach. Sometimes what I might tell people is that all, all children have the capability to learn language Math is a language, and so therefore all children have the capability to learn mathematics. Now, look, I mean, giving that sort of rational argument to a parent who is exhibiting this particular anxiety is probably not going to be effective, though I'm not sure there is an effective argument that you can't give them because ultimately this boils down to a core fear, and the core fear is one that every person has had or you know, is overcome or not overcome, but it's the fear that I am stupid, right? Yeah. I, and everyone goes one of the three paths of fear with it, right? My path was fight. I'm going to fight this. But someone can easily go freeze. 
right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not going to say anything. Maybe they're going to pretend all the way through class to try to get through it. And then a lot of people might go fight, right? Which might look like, I'm not doing this. I'm running away from this. Or they might just become extremely emotional around it. Frustration, anger, upset. We get parents coming to us that say math time involves tears. It's true. Math time in my household when I was young involved tears. I believe it. I understand it. I lived it. And the thing is, is that it boils down to this. And I've told one parent this in four years, and then they stopped arguing with me about it, which was Helen Keller learned language. So I'm 100% sure that your child can learn language. It's just about getting them the help. Yep. Perfect. What is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? Yeah, I'd like to change the way the world teaches mathematics. <laughs> and you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yes, and very, really well. You know, I love math. It helps me in everything I do. Uh, it has helped me in my life, my work, my career, everything. But I know many don't feel this way. So I think the work you are doing and the, the way, the approach, you know, the design and how elephant uh, learning is designed to help is, is wonderful. And I would encourage everyone to reach out, to learn. You have excellent uh, education, learning material. They can really get a very good understanding of how you can help. And I hope and I'm sure you will help some of the listeners, you know, who will reach out and uh, seek to use elephant learning. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you giving me the space to talk about this. Thank you for, uh, for the work you do and for sharing it with us. Awesome. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.